We supposedly have an elected government and we are classified as a democratic country. But of course, while the rights exist in the laws, the constitution of the country, in actual practice, they don't exist. If rodeo doesn't work out for these kids, and they go to a university, their dream of being a rodeo cowboy kind of goes away. But as a lineman, I feel like that you can have a career that's everlasting but still have your hobbies on the side and still go do the weekend stuff. Sankofa means it's not taboo to forget what has been left behind in the past. But for us, we understand it as remembering your African ancestry as you move forward in life. We'll put it on YouTube. Isn't that where you go to see funny cat videos and base jumping? Yeah, but there's construction stuff and blacksmithing stuff. And so we thought that it was going to carve out an internet footprint for marketing my blacksmith stuff, my architectural ironwork and swords. Their instinct is to help the police and subdue unruly black Detroiters. The white superheroes realize that they're helping imprison these people who are being victimized, and that wasn't very heroic of them. Hey, you're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, anti-labor rule in Asia-Pacific, radio labor reports on how unions are fighting back, as exemplified by Fiji's labor movement. On the Powerline podcast, Casey Field talks about how important the trades are and why ranch and rodeo kids are a perfect fit for those types of jobs. Then, Kamal Bell, owner of Sankofa Farms, talks with The Checkout about how he uses agricultural practices rooted in his African heritage to address modern problems like food deserts that disproportionately affect black communities. On Grit Nation, logger, blacksmith, carpenter, and internet sensation Scott Wadsworth talks about how the trays can be a more viable route than college and how he started his YouTube channel. We wrap up with a really fun and interesting episode of Tales from the Ruther Library as Dr. Vincent Haddad joins the show to talk about how black DC comic heroes such as Amazing Man dismantled urban stereotypes about Detroit while also reflecting the city's history with race. A quick word before we get to the show, this is your network and we're building it like a union organizing campaign, one show and one listener at a time. Please help us build this sonic solidarity by sharing this show. You just click on the share button. Thanks so much. I'm Chris Garlock and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. I'm Mark Polange. As in other parts of the world, the Asia-Pacific region is seeing a rise in authoritarian governments which deny basic labor rights. An example is Fiji, a country of about a million people in the South Pacific. 
The general secretary of the Fiji Trades Union Congress is Felix Anthony. Mr. Anthony is also the president of the Asia-Pacific branch of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the global body which represents national union centers such as the Fiji Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Mr. Anthony was recently interviewed by the Labor Radio Podcast Network in the United States. We supposedly have an elected government and we are classified as a democratic country, but of course while The rights exist in the laws, the constitution of the country, in actual practice they don't exist. For instance, freedom of speech is curtailed seriously. We've had three military coups since 1987, then 2000, and then 2006. And as like any other military coup, the rights of workers and the general population have been curtailed seriously and in many cases are non-existent. We've had in between these democratic elections and those uh, elections where new governments were elected have not been actually given a chance to really rule. And we've had, like, like I said, three coups, the last being in 2006, which was uh, the worst out of the three. And of course, as we go along, uh, as coups take place, they tend to get worse and worse. And uh, we've had few deaths since 2006 in the coups. And uh, not only that, uh, the trade union movement, uh, the leaders were jailed. And uh, there's been really no real reason other than to intimidate, to instill fear in people. That's been the strategy of the military government. And then, of course, the military government got itself elected as the democratic government. The last election was 2018. Uh, So to say that there's some semblance of democracy, But as we all know, that elections alone does not define democracy. We supposedly have an elected government, and we are classified as a democratic country. But of course, while the rights exist in the laws, the constitution of the country, in actual practice, they don't exist. Let me give an example. For instance, freedom of speech is curtailed seriously. I myself have been charged for speaking up for workers, 2,000 workers who were summarily dismissed by a government agency. And uh, I have been charged and on bail uh, and waiting for trial in October. And I've been on bail since 2019. So uh, three years going. Uh, So uh, that's the kind of uh, situation that we face. We don't have freedom of assembly. We've As the Fiji Trade Union Congress, we've applied for permits to stage a march and protest in support of labor law reforms, particularly the workers' right to go on strike, the imposition of individual contracts as against collective bargaining, and to protest against the termination of our national airline workers, our airport workers, our water authority workers, who were summarily dismissed without cause, but our applications have been denied six times in a row without any reasons given. So as trade unions, we our activities are seriously curtailed. And within the public sector, there's a total absence of collective bargaining whatsoever. And this makes it very difficult for unions to retain membership, number one. And not only that, but is to seek redress for any unfair dismissals or any unfair treatment meted out to workers. 
More news from the Labor Podcast Network can be found at laborradionetwork.org. And that's it, labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. All right. What's up, everybody? My name is Ryan Lucas. I'm the founder and host of Powerline Podcast. Welcome to the show. My next guest is Casey Field. Casey is a six-time world champion cowboy. Now, it's not every day you get to sit down with somebody that's a world champion at anything, never mind six-time world champion. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know trades has been a part of your life. What have you done in the trades? What sort of trades have you? Man, so mechanic, when I was young, right down the road was the orchard. So they have lots of tractors, old John Deere's old cases. I started changing oil on the tractors in the orchard when I was young, learning hydraulics, learning just the basics of being a mechanic. And then I went through school for a year in building management. We built a house for Habitat for Humanity. That was a fun experience. I like framing a lot. Cool. And so now going through life, buying rental properties. If there needs to be a remodel or anything, I can go back to my past and my trade and save you 15, 20,000 bucks if you can go in there and do it yourself. And then uh, with injuries, rodeo life, I stepped away from rodeo for two years, just stepped back. I was just going to the big events, limited myself. I, I didn't know if I wanted to be a bareback rider at that time and started a fencing company. We specialized in drill pipe fence mostly. And then we ended up doing way more bob wire than I wanted to do. That's where the money was at the time. It wasn't in my goals to do bob wire. I've been dreaming of a fencing company and building arenas and building barns and all that stuff like that. And you know, around rodeo. And it ended up being out in the mountains. And I had to, that was another life lesson that I learned. This isn't what you wanted. This isn't what you're dreaming, but this is how you achieve the ultimate goal of being successful at a fencing company. So I did that for a few years, really enjoyed it. Being outside, physical labor, I really enjoy that. I Working with my hands, it's good therapy for me. It really is. Being around those type of guys, rough and tough, I like that stuff too. And running a business like that, I learned a lot. How to take care of your equipment, how to be a leader, number one, and how to take control of every situation because every if you got guys working for you there if there's a problem oh, dude. they're coming to the boss oh, and, it, and it's, they're not coming to tell you something that awesome happened no if you have an employee coming you're a firefighter that. you're just putting out you're just putting out fires you are a therapist <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> so. a way better way to look yes. yeah. yeah they just bring all their problems to work yeah yes. for sure anytime i have a school i take two or three kids privately here at the house for yeah. I don't do big schools, but to make them go build fence, I make a generator box or teach them yeah. something. It's interesting. You could say, hey, go out here. I want you to put a post every 10 feet. It's 100 feet. Put a top rail, put four bob wire, four strands of bob wire on it. And an 18-year-old kid that's determined and disciplined and he doesn't care what people are thinking. He doesn't care if he gets this on social media. He goes and gets the job done from point A to point B. And then there's going to be kids that come up and like, I, I wasn't listening when you told me what to do. What You want me to go from yeah. A and B and do what? You, you learn a lot about somebody when it's when you can yeah. simplify it rather than complicating it. The skills are important. Like, and even if you're going to use them as a job, as a career, or just learn them to get through life, 
things like being a mechanic. There's still always going to be vehicles that need to get fixed. That was one thing on a line crew. If you have some mechanic background in you, you are the most valuable person on the crew. So like all these kids always ask me like, how do I get into this? There's so many people fighting for this spot to get an apprenticeship, to be a lineman. How do I be different? I'm like, get yourself a skill that's gonna set you apart from these people. Whether that's you can drive, you can do whatever. I often tell them, learn how to be a mechanic. Like maybe you don't do a full mechanic apprenticeship. You don't necessarily need a mechanic and a mechanic truck yeah. to come out to the job when it's just yeah. a brake line. Exactly. Think of how valuable you are to that company when they don't have to spend 1500 bucks for the mechanic to come out and fix a brake line. All you gotta do is crawl underneath there, get some bob wire or some duct tape, yep. and yep. put it back together. Yep. 100%. <laughs> What's funny is with Power Pro, this company that we started a few years ago, when someone puts in an application, if they have a rural town they're from or they have on their application a farm or ranch in their past, it's like, we want them there, we want them here yeah. now. Yeah. We, not, we don't even need to interview them, you yeah. know. You know, awesome. I, I'm excited to help get these young kids, these rodeo kids, these rural America kids. Obviously, if it, rodeo doesn't work out for these kids and they go to a university, their, you know, their dream of being a rodeo cowboy or even just a weekend jackpot kind of goes away. But as a lineman, I feel like that you can make good enough money, you're home enough, that you can still do your hobbies mm -hmm. and, and have a career that's everlasting, but still have your hobbies on the side and still go do the weekend stuff. Cool. Well, appreciate it. Thanks Heck for yeah. taking time. Thank you. Appreciate awesome. it, Ryan. Welcome to the checkout, founder of Sankofa Farms. Coming at us live from the farm, no doubt, is Kamal yeah, Bell. Yeah. Thanks for making time for us. No problem, thanks for having me today. So where is Sankofa Farms and what motivated you to start it? Sankofa is in a small municipality called Cedar Grove, North Carolina, here in Orange County, North Carolina. It's about 30 minutes from UNC Chapel Hill, like their main camp. What ultimately got me in it was just learning about the impacts that food deserts had on the Black community, and then wanting to design a business that touched on the things that we saw that made food deserts. So like an example would be land ownership. I wanted to go in on land. Food, like having access to healthy food, so we want to produce healthy food, even though there are many more barriers. We thought about education because they, they tried to correlate educational attainment. I think it's really more cultural prep. We looked at that from centering like the name of Sankofa and what we do at the farm around our culture and growing those items. We also saw the youth component and the idea of sustainability. So we transferred or switched over to regenerative agricultural practices and we looked at we look at sustainability also from a youth like work with the youth so you have more long-term solutions. Then we look at the economic piece. So we've been really working on a model, entrepreneurial model for more people to be able to use as they go into small scale farming. What does Sankofa mean? And how have you been inspired by the African diaspora tradition in farming, as well as just the legacy of black farmers in the deep South? So Sankofa means to go back and get it 
or it can be also understood as a phrase that means it's not taboo to forget what has been left behind in the past. And But for us, we understand it as remembering your African ancestry as you move forward in life. So for us with being a, I think it's hard for people to understand it, where I don't think really look at African-Americans, we're really American Africans. So our ancestry, even though we've only been here 100 years, others might be a little bit longer, but the majority of our history is in Africa. <laughs> so I think people are like, you're American. We're also African too, here in America. So we're African first. It's been really important for us to cling to those concepts and cling to our history in order to move forward and have an identity of who we are today. So the idea is that we saw, like our perspective of agriculture doesn't start with slavery. A lot of people when they're talking always go back to that. But like I said, that's such a small moment in our history, like in African history. So for us, we looked at, our contributions to the agricultural field or to building food sources. And we looked at Africa first. What are some of the agrarian traditions from Africa that have inspired you? Mine's is going to immediately go back to beekeeping. The oldest records of beekeeping can be found in ancient Kemet, and, which is now Egypt. So the original people of Kemet meant land of the black. And so the people who occupy Egypt now historically and ancestrally aren't from that area. The hieroglyphics depict a different pe a different uh, type of person. And they also have depictions of beekeeping there. Also uh, Angola, which was the large largest exporter of beeswax in the early 17th century in the world. So mm -hmm. I think there's a, those are the, that's how I look at agriculture. I look at it more so from a communal aspect and a social aspect, a way of life more so that something that everybody participated in. Agriculture is the way it is now because we've gotten away from all participating in the food system outside of the consumer aspect. So I don't knock the mechanization of agriculture. I understand why it has to exist. But my aspect is that it's a communal and it's a right for everybody. Everybody has a place. So being in North Carolina, what is the situation with food apartheid, food insecurity, lack of healthy food access? in the communities that you're serving? It's, it disproportionately affects Black people here in North Carolina and specifically kids. So for us, being able to work with youth is a way to bridge or try to do that. But you, re you realize once you're doing the work, you're just like a little link in the chain. So I think our one of our other focuses has been bringing in lot more resources to amplify the mission and to also figure out how we're going to truly address it. Because I think one part of the conversation is like land sovereignty and being one with nature, like those, that I did, which is a part of it. But the other part is like once you occupy the land, how do you keep it? Because we know, we know what happens to people who can't keep the land from any background, but disproportionately black people just taking neighborhoods get gentrified. So for us, we're looking at how we can try to address these issues from a holistic approach and how we don't let this thing repeat itself again. Thank you so much for you, your birds chirping in the background, <laughs> and all the work that you're doing out there at Sankofa Farms. Great to talk to you. Nice talking to you too.
another episode of the Grit Nation podcast. I'm Joe Cadwell, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with logger, blacksmith, carpenter, and internet sensation, Scott Wadsworth. Better known to over 1 million YouTube followers as the Essential Craftsman, Scott, together with his son Nate, have created a wealth of entertaining and educational videos designed to help anyone interested in learning more about blue-collar craft skills. Scott Wadsworth, welcome to Grit Nation. Man, thanks for bringing me on, Joe. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and here we are. Yeah, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show today. So much of education does is pretty costly. You know, you can come out of University of Oregon or Washington State or with easily a $120,000 bill, which you're trying yeah. to get out from behind. And yet YouTube or social media is a plethora of information that is for free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where folks like the essential craftsmen come in and they fill in these huge gaps. And I've learned so much from how to sharpen a carpenter's pencil to how to lay out a spec home. You run the whole <laughs> breadth and width of carpentry. And how did you come into that, Scott? It, boy, it was because... So I worked union for two years in Las Vegas and they were two great years. And I watched the guys that I worked with and they had more comfortable lives. Okay. Their lives were more comfortable and their retirements are better. The flip side of that is my sort of hunter gatherer approach to construction, which was particularly as a small general contractor, which is pretty much always going out, finding something, killing it, dragging it home and eating it, and then go <laughs> out and find something new to kill and drag it home. That forced a very broad and deep education, construction education on me. It forced it. I was continually having to learn something new in order to feed my family. And now I see that was its own compensation. At the time, it just felt like high wire without a net. And it was a high wire act without a net. So that would be one thing that I would tell young people that when you are in that situation where you don't know how to do something and you have to start doing it in order to make that house payment, don't be fooled. You're buying education and you're being paid to get education, which is part of the beauty of the trades. So I don't know exactly how I stumbled into what it is that, that I bring to the table now, but it has to be understood in terms of the number of people that I worked with in the number of different situations and the number of scary things I had to tackle, even though I didn't know how. And you have a son who's a millennial. And he's the one who pushed you along with the with the adoption of YouTube, isn't it? And I think at first yes. you were sharing some skills that you had learned about blacksmithing. Yeah. And eventually that started to morph into the, the humble origins of the Essential Craftsman yeah. YouTube channel and now podcast. And I understand you also have the Essential Craftsman Academy. So this is, Nate is my partner in our social media venture. Nate's your he's son. Old, yeah, he's my oldest son. 2016, he was up here from, he and Ali, his bride, and their kids lived in Mesa, Phoenix area, and they were up here for Christmas. And about it, around the new year, he said, Dad, I think we should film something in your shop. Why, son? We'll put it on YouTube. Isn't that where you go to see funny cat videos and, and base jumping? Yeah, but they also, there's construction stuff and blacksmithing stuff. And so we thought that it was going to carve out an internet footprint for marketing my blacksmith stuff, my architectural ironwork and swords. That was the intention. And he was trying to help me with that. And so we did that, a few blacksmithing videos, and after a while, we did a. I built a little garden shed for my other son in Mesa and uploaded some carpentry stuff. And, wow, people liked it, and, oh, wow, I guess we need to do more carpenter stuff. And so that's how the road forked 
it's to include blacksmithing and carpentry. And then it's forked again to include the logging that I've done and still do. Um, Thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Great to meet you. And I'd love to learn more about underwater welding. Anytime, Scott. My guest today has been Scott Wadsworth, host of the hugely successful Essential Craftsman YouTube channel. Hi, all, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the amazing city of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host. So today, folks, we have something a little different from our usual labor and urban history podcast interviews. This episode, we are talking about comic books. Detroit has been represented in comics, but as that urban ghetto and that stereotypical interpretation of our city. So this is why I was glad to talk to Vincent Haddad, who wrote an article in Inks called Detroit versus Everybody, including superheroes, representing race through settings in DC comics. Haddad is an assistant professor of English at Central State University in Ohio, who got his PhD from Wayne State University in 2016 in literary and cultural studies and is working on a book about Detroit culture. In his essay, he focuses on Amazing Man in the 1980s series All-Star Squadron and Cyborg, a solo series in 2010. Detroit is the perfect setting to explore its historical and material conditions, especially the black experience about race, labor, and culture. Issue 38 deals with the racial conflict in Detroit and the Soldier Truth Holmes. This blew me away that they're actually talking about it in a comic and such a heavy topic to bring up. Can you give us the backdrop of the actual event as well as how it played out in the comic? If you are not from Detroit, you might be reading this and actually not know that this is completely accurate history. All they did was add superheroes into mm-hmm. this story, which is, is really well, well done by Roy Thomas, the writer. We first meet Will Everett for Amazing Man in issue 23 of All-Star Squadron in the fashion that some of your listeners might be familiar with the first appearance of Black Panther, where the all-white superheroes, when they first see a costumed Black man, they think he's a villain. They fight him, and in the process of fighting him, you learn what his powers are. So Dr. Fate and and the Atom, they're returning from an adventure to the Tower of Fate because they want to get his original, Dr. Fate's original helmet. Only when they come in, they discover that Dr. Fate's wife, Inza, she's knocked over and she's sprawled out on the ground. So already we could get this problematic trope of this vulnerable white woman who has been knocked over by a black man and they don't know what's happening. And she warns that he, he stole the helmet and he's in the basement. They run down, they fight Amazing Man. You learn that amazing man, he can change into whatever material or element he's touching. He's really this cool character. And he's like crafty enough to know that he could become the bricks and get through the Tower of Fate, but he can't pull the helmet back through the bricks. And so he's trapped. And this is why the heroes can kind of fight him. So eventually they knock him out and they put his hands on this like magic orb, which gets him to reveal his origin story. So the first appearance is not just a first appearance, it's also an origin story. And that's where we learn he grew up in the South. Um, His family moved to to Detroit to escape racism. Little did they know that they were going to have to deal with that considerably in the city of Detroit. Uh, His dad works in a car factory and is working. Will is like a track star and he gets to go to the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And so he like, him and Jesse Owens, they win gold medals and rub Hitler's face. And that kind of fits with the ethos of that series a little bit. And when he comes home, like the Detroit, he makes a joke that the Detroit Tigers are not hiring any colored shortstops. And he has to work as a janitor in a science lab. And there are people, some burglars come to try to steal this new 
technology, but they also make the mistake of racially insulting Will. So he fights them, ultimately gets captured and they do experiments on him. And that's how he gets his superpowers, especially because he's coerced into telling the truth. The reader and the heroes understand that Will is a sympathetic character, right? right? He was forced into doing this. They end up letting him go. And so it's not until 15 issues later where they bring back Amazing Man in this three-issue arc, issues 38 to 40, that are these Detroit issues. And these are the issues that I really focus in the article. And so this is just like another time where the heroes are doing some adventuring and then they catch this newsreel footage of Detroit and the Sojourner Truth home riots are happening. For some of your listeners, this is like a really significant event in the lead up to the 1943 racial uprisings in the city. And they see there's a black man who is taken by the Ku Klux Klan. He's tied to this cross and lit on fire. And of course, they recognize this as Will and he becomes the medal of the chains that they used to tie, they mistakenly used to tie him up to the cross. He becomes metal and he beats up his oppressors. Eventually he's overwhelmed and he's, and he's taken to jail. So the All-Star Squadron, they decide they need to go to Detroit to help Will escape or become free. Because Will's in jail, he's not the, really the main character of, the, of those three issues. It's really the message or the theme of those three issues is the white superheroes, when they arrived at the city of Detroit, they have to learn the lesson that when they're like swooping into these riots, their instinct, um, which is informed by their racial bias, their instinct is to help the police and subdue like unruly black Detroiters. And they'll even say a couple of times, we're trying to do this for your own good. And they're like helping. They realize that they're helping imprison these people who are being victimized. And that wasn't very heroic of them. So the real story of those issues is that the white superheroes learn how to be less less biased. Hey, thanks for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot about superheroes that I didn't know before about Detroit and can't wait to start digging in and looking for them. Thanks a lot, Vincent. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith. I produced the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. And before we go, take just a second to help us build sonic solidarity by sharing the show. Just click on the share button. Thanks so much. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Thank you.